Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We can measure climate danger, including the number of people who die from climate-related disasters, and that's way down. You can also, by the way, measure who dies from temperature, and far more people die of cold than of heat. So if you have a movement that says, oh, I care so much about climate danger, it just wrings my heart to see people dying of heat, but I don't care about the more people dying of cold, and I don't acknowledge the fact that people are safer from climate than ever, and I'm passing policies to prevent them from air conditioning themselves in the summer and heating themselves in the winter, which is actually even more important. That is a fake concern for human life. Hello, and welcome back to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Alex Epstein. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for pronouncing my last name correctly. (laughs) I did check to make sure. Um, I should say welcome back to the show. This is your second time on the podcast. We always love having you on to speak some much needed sense about climate change, fossil fuels, and the future. And I think there's loads for us to discuss, including some of the ideas in your brilliant new book, Fossil Future, which has got my favorite subtitle of recent times, which is why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal, and natural gas, not less. And there's a lot in there that I want to talk to you about. But to start the discussion off, I need to ask you about the crisis we're all currently living through, which is the energy crisis, and the fact that people's bills are going through the roof. They cannot afford to pay what they are being asked to pay for their energy. And so, for example, here in the UK, it was announced uh, this week, the week we're recording, that the typical household bill could reach £4,266 a year, which would be up from £164 a month to £355 a month, which is simply unaffordable for millions of people. So to get into this discussion that I really wanted to have with you, I want to start off by asking you, what is behind the energy crisis? What is causing this extreme crisis that we are heading into right now? The direct cause is very, very simple. And the only reason why it's not being globally publicized is that it implicates our establishment. Um, So we can talk about the deeper causes, but the direct cause is, is very simple. It's supply and demand. And for the last 15 plus years, the world has uh, been involved in a concerted effort to rapidly restrict the supply of fossil fuels with the explicit goal of rapidly eliminating them by, say, 2050. And that involves opposing fossil fuel investment, fossil fuel production, fossil fuel refining, fossil fuel transportation. And so that that artificially suppressed the supply of fossil fuels. And the promise was that, oh, well, all that demand for energy uh, is no problem because unreliable solar and wind will will more than make up the difference. And that failed to materialize. And so what you have is a shortfall of supply relative to uh, demand. And and you really saw the height of this irresponsibility in 2020 when we had lockdowns and global pandemic. And there was this idea of, oh, we'll never really need fossil fuels again. And the industry isn't doing well. And so we don't need to invest in them. And it's okay to talk about divesting. And, and it just, that never made any sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, and so it's just, it's again, we can talk about the deeper causes, but it's just very clear that the establishment that is involved in a global anti-fossil fuel movement that radically and artificially restricted the supply of this relative to what it should be and what it would be had it they not restricted it. And then that, that leads to these terrible consequences. And the other thing is they never really thought through how important energy was. I'm not even close, not even on the level of what it means to consumers, which you mentioned, but let alone the level of what it means to producers and therefore consumers, because energy is an input in everything that involves machines. So it's not just your household energy bills go up, but your household everything bills go up. And that's that's just beginning to to start. 
I think that it, it's such an important jumping off point for this discussion because I am finding the current debate about the energy crisis so incredibly frustrating because it seems really clear to me, as you've just outlined there, that there is a clear link between the fact that we have essentially been demonizing energy over the past few decades, seeing energy production and any con energy consumption as problematic things, destructive things, which uh, create so much pollution, so much waste, so much carbon. And the campaigns, which is, as you say, were embraced by the establishment, the campaigns to limit our use of fossil fuels, limit our capacity to produce the energy we need. The idea that that wouldn't then give rise to some form of energy crisis or to a spike in energy prices or, or problems with supply and demand, is a, it seems to be a complete fantasy. And yet there is an extraordinary amount of cognitive dissonance going on. So I keep seeing green-leaning politicians on my TV telling me, wringing their hands over the energy crisis, and I want to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, you played a role in this. Then we have people like George Monbiot from The Guardian, who is currently uh, gnashing his teeth over the recession. This is someone who, about 15 years ago, wrote an article called Bring on the Recession, which was about the need to limit production, limit consumption, and shrink the human footprint. So why do you think there is this cognitive dissonance between people who've been campaigning openly to restrict the use of fossil fuels and the production of energy sources and their inability to understand why we're now in this crisis? Are they just in denial about the role they've played or, or do you think they really can't see the problems that they have caused? I think there are a couple of forms of denial. I think one is just that the monbiotype is... They, they want kind of two things or two related things. One is they want this anti-fossil fuel more broadly, like anti-human impact on earth agenda. Mm. And then they want to be popular in part because they need to be popular to impose that agenda. But the problem is in practice, nobody likes the agenda <laughs> once it succeeds. So before it succeeds, before it gets implemented, they can say, oh, well, if you just do our agenda, you're going to be rich. I just posted about this in the case of Spain today. You know, the idea is, oh, if you, if you adopt green energy, you're going to have this vibrant industry and you're going to be so comfortable. And now they're saying, no, you can't, you're, you're, it's illegal for these buildings to cool themselves below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. I think it's 27 Celsius. And it's like, it's, it's gone from, oh, it's going to be better to, no, it's going to be worse, but you have to, you have to do it. And so this is what's happening is the consequences, the, the rhetoric of being green can be popular the consequences can't be popular yeah. because the rhetoric is dishonest. The rhetoric says, if you act to eliminate your impact on earth, somehow your life is going to be better. And that's a contradiction because the way we make life better on earth is to massively and intelligently impact it, including by using the most cost-effective sources of energy, which most of the time today is, is fossil fuels. So part of it is just, yeah, they want, they want to keep their popularity so they're, they're clinging to the idea that, oh, no, our policies don't lead to recession. They don't lead to suffering. But that is, I think that jig is soon to be up because th that you see a lot of them, the more consistent ones, then going to, no, no, you need to do this. It's for the planet. It's for the climate. But we need we need to do this. I think there are others who kind of want to lie to themselves or that they don't want to face, like a Biden type yeah. would be in this category, I think. Where it's like I don't want to, um, I don't want to admit that what I've been doing the last fifteen, twenty years of my life has created this crisis. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna scrounge up the most implausible reason it's not my fault. So in his case, it's I say like, oh, there are all these leases that are available that companies are not drilling on. And it's like, oh, there's $100 oil, but they're not drilling. It must be like they're just being randomly greedy right now. Even though they were drilling when it was $50 oil, it's not my threats to them. It's not that there's some economic reason why these particular leases aren't the right thing for them. It's not that I haven't actually given them the permits for some of these leases. It's just, it must be their fault. Whereas if you think about it logically, your actions have limited the investment in the industry, yep. all kinds of productive opportunities, refining, uh, transportation, like the whole landscape of the world and what opportunities would be available would look totally different. And so you've created a very shrunken landscape with comparatively few opportunities. And then you're saying, hey, why don't you do these things that you don't want to do because you don't think they're viable because I feel like getting approval right now. So yeah. he's just, I mean, how can you really think 
that you suppressing investment, production, refining, and transportation had no adverse consequences on supply. So it, it's it's the, the I think the thing we need to take away is we need to implicate them over and over and over. It's not enough to just say once or twice, yeah. hey, by the way, you had a role. It's no, no, no. This is your fault and you are denying responsibility. And I also take the step of, and you could as well, like, I was right about this. Mm. Like, I'll put out videos <laughs> saying, hey, I warned you about this. And the reason is it's not to aggrandize myself. It's that whenever you have a crisis, who's implicated and who's vindicated changes the trajectory of the intellectual um, landscape going forward. So we need the right people implicated and the right people vindicated. It happens to be the anti-fossil fuel side needs to be implicated and the pro-human side, like the two of us, needs to be vindicated. Yeah, I've been thinking exactly the same thing, basically wanting to shout from the rooftops, I told you so, in terms of the things that I've been writing and saying uh, in my small way over the past 20 years, really, which is Every time I've done a public debate with someone from the green lobby or someone who is a climate change alarmist, I've always made the point that there will be severe consequences if we limit humanity's capacity to uh, use fossil fuels to get the energy that we need to sustain life and to improve life for the billions of people who still live in uh, far more abject conditions than we in the West do. And at times it was like talking to a brick wall because that kind of naive, utopian view came in, which is, look, if we clean up the planet, if we erase the human footprint, things will just get better. The air will be cleaner. The water will be cleaner. You'll be able to walk through the park. And an extreme naivety came into play. So I have wanted to revisit all of those people and say, listen, I warned you about some of this crisis that was just around the corner. One thing I've been doing, and I think you should too, is if you have, you know, get your team to look through video footage of you and of them. I was just looking through something the other day where it's cold demand, you know, hits a high, matches a high this year's going higher next year. I know I've, d- the guy, uh, I don't know if you know this guy, Jim Cramer in the US. Mm-hmm. Do you know that guy is? Yeah. is kind of an interesting personality. I, I want to go on a show at some point, so I won't say too much about, but he doesn't have the best track record on this issue, let's say. And he was talking about, you know, the death knell of fossil fuels. And I, I messaged him like, hey, you want to debate this? a few years ago. And then he liked all the posts that were criticizing me and he never did. But it's like, I did this or I was seeing this coal thing. And then in in 2017, I'm saying the world is going to be using more coal because it's crucial. And everyone else is saying, no, it's like, why? That's important that people know who was right. So I think if you have this paper trail and video trail, Spike should publicize it. It's very, (laughs) very important. Absolutely. I agree. And what's interesting about the current moment, just sticking with vindication and holding people to account uh, for the things that they said over the past few decades. What's really amazing to me is that even in the midst of the energy crisis, the fact that people are heading for an extraordinary cost of living crisis, the fact that there are farmers in Europe who can't produce the food that we need and in Canada too because of imposed cuts on the use of fertilizer, the fact that people in the underdeveloped world are going to be plunged into an even worse living conditions as a consequence of all these crises. Even despite all of that going on, that green hysteria continues. And so we still have groups like Extinction Rebellion, for example, who are gluing themselves to motorways to try to prevent the moving of traffic, which are chaining themselves outside of oil production companies to try and uh, prevent the production of oil at a time when we need more energy and we need more production. And I wanted to ask you about the prospects for the intellectual climate improving, because you said there very correctly that we really do need to keep pushing the argument that they were wrong to make the demands that they've been making to shrink the human footprint over the past few decades. But is there any space, do you think, for people realizing that it may have been a mistake? Or do you think they are so into the ideology, the the anti-human impact ideology, as you describe it, that there's no way for them to come out of this and they're going to stick with that regardless of its destructive consequences. So I guess it depends on whom you're talking about. I think for most people, it's very possible to change and even likely a lot will change. If you're talking about the leadership of Extinction Rebellion, I'm not <laughs> holding my breath for them to change, but I don't think it's it's important that they change. Mm. Because so, so the thing is, there's two two forces going on here. One is that a crisis does cause people 
to be more open to questioning their assumptions. Because yeah. basically what a crisis means is there's a really bad state of affairs that the establishment at the very least did not warn me about. And the, the default uh, cause that should be implicated for a crisis is the establishment. So you take something like a financial crisis or a 9-11, there's this idea that something went wrong with the establishment that I've trusted. So there's there's a real openness to people explaining how the establishment failed and then people explaining how they were correct, like, like how other people who were ignored were correct. And then those people, particularly the people who were correct, giving a path forward in the future. I mean, you saw this definitely with the attacks on 9-11. You saw this with the financial crisis where the people who were seen as predicting it got outsize influence uh, in terms of, hey, whom should we listen to going forward? They at least got much, much bigger followers. Like with the financial crisis, you had somebody like Peter Schiff of your, you know, at the time is Euro-Pacific Capital. I don't know what his, his uh, organizations are called now, but like he was a fairly obscure guy. But he had these these uh, cl- highlight clips of him on different shows being ridiculed for talking about a housing crisis and bubble and that kind of thing. And then as soon as that all collapsed, he just had this trail of everyone saying like, Peter Schiff was right. I'm going to listen to him uh, about the future. So there are ways of misusing track records and overly trusting people who seem to be right. But in general, it's good for people to question their assumptions. And so there is that openness for sure. You're definitely seeing that. And, th- and also they care more about the issue. So the, the other thing that's going on besides just the, the general opportunity for for reflection and for, for questioning the establishment and for, for being open to new ideas that a crisis brings is that, you know, the, the movement that I would say you and I are both part of, which I call broadly the energy humanist movement, has been very rhetorically successful in its growth in the last 10 years. And so energy by energy humanist, I mean, people who are thinking about these energy issues, including their climate side effects. Uh, from a, a pro-human perspective, which includes what I call a full context perspective, looking carefully at the benefits and the side effects. And historically, the way of thinking about it has been what I call fossil fuel benefit denial, where you just look for negative side effects of fossil mm-hmm. fuels. Uh, you also tend to exaggerate them uh, for various reasons, including you ignore the huge benefit of fossil fuels in mastering climate. So if you're concerned about climate-related side effects, but you ignore the ability of fossil fuels to make it cool when it's hot and, and warm when it's cold, you're going to totally mispredict everything which has happened. So those of us who've been making these arguments saying, hey, let's look at the benefits and the side effects carefully from a pro-human perspective, they've never had an answer to us. And you've seen a lot of best-selling books like my first one and now my new one, so Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, now Fossil Future, but also Michael Schellenberger's uh, Apocalypse Never, Bjorn Lomborg's False Alarm, Steve Coonan's Unsettled. There's been this whole emerging way of thinking about it that really has been persuasive and growing. Mm-hmm. And, and the other side hasn't really had a response to it besides ad hominems and just in smears and, and uh, straw manning our views. So I've, that was already growing, but now there's this perfect moment where more and more people are open to it. And so I, I was fortunate that it took me so long to do Fossil Future that it came out with perfect timing in terms of this crisis. And I'm definitely seeing so many people being open to the message. So I do think there's a huge opportunity. And I would just stress again that those of us who have been vindicated really need to say that because it's, and and we really need to implicate the other side. And we cannot count on anyone to do that job for us. So there's nobody, like the Washington Post, New York Times, they have never come to me and said, hey, you know what? You've been right on so many things. I would like to know your opinion about the future. That still has yet to happen. Yeah. So I'm going to keep, telling people, hey, I was right, but it's more important, this way of thinking is right. This fossil fuel benefit denial has to lead to terrible consequences. We need full context thinking. How Woke Won, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. So on that issue of um, fossil fuel benefit denial, the thing I've always admired about your work, and, and you've mentioned your, your books there, that the first one, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and then this new one, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. And the thing I've admired about both of these works, and they have influenced my thinking a lot, is that you are unapologetic in your defense of and your celebration of the use of fossil fuels 
to generate human flourishing. Now, you've mentioned just there that, of course, there are side effects, and those are things that a, a sensible society will factor into its decisions and how it, it decides to tackle those side effects. But the use of fossil fuels is a good thing and has improved human life enormously. And I think what's useful about that approach to fossil fuels, firstly, it's just completely counterintuitive to almost everything we hear all the time, right from when we're at school to we go to university through to everyday life in the workplace, social life, popular culture. Every single message we tend to get is that fossil fuels are a bad thing, leave them in the ground or else we're heading for apocalypse. So it turns everything on its head. But also, I think what's useful about it is that I think you describe very well, including in the new book, just why fossil fuels are so important. And there are some things that can only be done by the extraction and the use of fossil fuel. For example, flight, which requires the burning of large amounts of oil, or uh, the transportation of stuff around the world in vast ships. That is something that can only be done with fossil fuels. So give us a few examples of why of, of how central fossil fuel is to everyday human life and just what the consequences would be if we were to leave them in the ground, as some people suggest that we do. One perspective is that we're seeing the consequences of leaving them in the ground even 1% or 2% yeah. of what the anti-fossil fuel movement has been advocating, and those are those are horrific. Net zero is such an interesting issue to comment on because it really, nobody can believe how murderous it is. But even if you're concerned about climate side effects and warming, it doesn't change the fact that fossil fuels could have huge, unique benefits that if we lost would be absolutely catastrophic or I'd argue apocalyptic. I think the, you know, the basic thing to get, and I'll talk about some unique aspects of fossil fuels in a second, is just that the world unimpacted by human beings is a really inhospitable place. And it's a really inhospitable place for 500 million people. It was. It is a completely unlivable place for 8 billion people. So we have 8 billion people now, and we totally depend on what I call machine labor the ability to use machines to produce huge amounts of value for us. And machines do two things. One is they amplify our naturally meager productive ability. So they allow one person, say, to do 1,000 times the agricultural work that a person used to be able to do. But they also expand our productive abilities. They enable us to produce kinds of value that no number of human beings could do via manual labor, like saving a baby's life via an incubator. Human beings just can't do that physically. Hmm. So, or flying, we just can't do it physically. So, or, you know, just traveling around, you know, across the ocean, we can't do it physically. So we, we just live in this amazingly abundant and safe world by the grace of the amount of machine labor that's amplifying and uh, expanding our abilities. And when you look at it from that perspective, that all depends on energy that has four characteristics. It's low cost, otherwise people couldn't afford it. It's reliable, otherwise you couldn't need it, use it when you need it and the quantities you needed. It's versatile. This is one thing you were getting at. You need to be able to power all sorts of machines, including mm. things like planes and cargo ships that are today uniquely powered by oil. And then there's scalability. So the ability to provide energy low cost, reliably, versatile for billions of people in thousands of places. Right now, fossil fuels provide 80% of that energy, and they're still growing despite a century of alternatives. So when you see it from yeah. that perspective, that the livability of the planet depends on having cost-effective energy globally, and fossil fuels provide the overwhelming majority of it, and they're still growing, you have to think there's something special about these. And you should be terrified of the prospect of losing it because it really means losing all of these machines, including the machines that produce food, that produce clothing, that produce shelter, that are involved in medical care, and that free up all our time so we can have medical care. So I just want people to see, if you see how amazing the fossil fueled world is, again, regardless of what you're concerned about with the side effects, which we could talk about, you need to be terrified of losing the benefits. And again, we're seeing even a tiny little fractions of reducing fossil fuels in terms of people getting their way. It's already horrific, already threatening starvation, already making Europe afraid of the winter, which is such an embarrassment yeah. to be afraid of, particularly in a world that you say is too hot. Like you're afraid yeah. of winter in a world that's that's allegedly too hot. Yeah, so it's the, the versatility and the scalability of fossil fuels and the fact that nothing is resembling them today is so important. And then 
it's particularly important, even more important when you realize, oh, most of the world doesn't use anywhere near as much energy as we do and would like to. So uh, 6 billion people use an amount of energy that you and I would consider totally unacceptable Mm. in our lives. 3 billion people use less electricity than a typical US refrigerator does. Uh, A third of the world uses wood and animal dung for heating and cooking. So we have an energy starved world that its current state needs to get a lot better. And its current amazing state depends on the, the value fossil fuels uniquely provide. And we're not factoring in those benefits at all. Of course, we're gonna make horrific decisions and we're just getting started. So net zero in my world, in my view, should not be discussed in civilized company as as a as a thing, as an idea. That's very well put. And the failure of campaigners and activists and politicians and the establishment to factor in what the consequences would be of uh, shrinking our use of fossil fuels, I think, is a real indictment of of their ideology. You mentioned their um, food production, and I wanted to ask you about that in particular because you said there that, and you've written about this too that machinery, which is powered by fossil fuels, allows one person to do the work of that a thousand people would previously done in terms of agricultural production. Of course, there is also um, the use of fertilizer, which massively expands how many crops can be grown uh, securely and safely. We know about the benefits of the green revolution of the 50s and the 60s, which really helped some countries to become self-sufficient in certain forms of crops and to avoid the kind of famines that they might previously have experienced. So radical transformations, courtesy of machinery and fossil fuels that allowed us to feed if we wanted to. Obviously, there are blips sometimes in terms of provision and equality, but it allows us to feed 8 billion people, which would have been unimaginable in any other era apart from our own. And yet right now we have a situation in Europe, in Canada, around the world, where there is this demonization even of fertilizer and the oxides that it produces and how damaging they are. The European Union is really adamant to put pressure onto its member states to limit the amount of fertilizer they use. Of course, there's the Sri Lanka situation where um, the transformation of or the attempted transformation of Sri Lanka into an organic country was a complete disaster and has led to social meltdown. When you see stuff like that, which really does call into question the capacity of a society to produce the food that it needs, does that tell you that the cult of fossil fuel benefit denial has just gone so far that they can't even see the benefits of of being able to create abundant amounts of food for the people who live in your society? Definitely. You know, more more broadly, it's it's the cult of industrial benefit mm-hmm. denial. Which is just another perspective on being green, you know, because the idea of green is minimizing or eliminating human impact on Earth. And this is pitched as, oh, this is going to be good because there are all these bad impacts and we're going to get rid of them. And and then the Earth is going to be in its naturally what I call delicate nurture state, right? It's going to be a stable place. It'll be sufficient. It'll give us what we need as long as we're not too greedy and it'll be safe. So it's this idea of, oh, if we go green, the world's going to become more livable. And then you see, no, 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 wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there are certain impacts that we'd like to minimize all things be equal because they're adverse to humans. Most of our impacts, including like the benefits of fertilizer, are really, really good. Yeah. So if you have a hostility toward impact as such, you're going to make the earth more primitive, which as I said before, is horrible for 500 million people, but just complete apocalypse for 8 billion people. So I think I think what you're seeing is the green you can see it as benefit denial, and that's kind of a first layer pass at it. But then there's this question of why are you denying the benefits of the obvious? Yeah. Why are you denying, particularly if you have specific knowledge, how can you deny the benefits of fossil fuels to the point of talking about their elimination without considering what that would mean, what the loss of them would mean without really thinking through how, how are you possibly going to replace this value, let alone expand it to billions of people? And then with fertilizer, same thing. How can you ignore the fact that this makes the world unnaturally abundant and whatever issues you have with it, you need to be incredibly careful. Where are all these precautionary principle people when it comes to getting rid of fertilizer? They seem to have no precaution when it comes to eliminating yeah. valuable technologies, only new technologies they want to eliminate. So what, is, what you're starting to see, and I talk about this in chapter three of Fossil Future, is that the, the people with knowledge of this stuff who deny the benefits of fossil fuels and more broadly of industry, it's really that... It's not, it can't be ignorance. It can't just be, oh, it's that they have to have a different goal. Their goal can't be, 
benefiting human beings as much as possible. Because you, you couldn't deny those huge benefits. And I argue that the goal is actually, you know, eliminating human impact on earth as much as possible. There's this belief, and I think of it as a primitive religious belief, that human impact is evil and that we should get rid of it as much as possible. And that functions as their goal. And they just see impact and they just want to oppose it wherever it is. And they don't really care. The leaders don't care about the consequences. I think I use the analogy in, in Fossil Future Chapter 3 of the people who are against animal testing, even when they know it's good for medical research. And it's just like, why? how can you say you're not for animal testing for medical research, but th their goal is not human flourishing. Their goal is what they would call animal rights, what I would call animal equality, which is it's evil for us to impact animals. And so our goal should be to not do it, mm. regardless of the consequences on human life. Absolutely. I want to come back to the point you raised there about almost that religious antagonism they have towards the very idea of human impact and the consequences of human impact, because I think that's one of the most important arguments you make. But before we get to that, which is really a philosophical question, uh, how do we uh, position ourselves philosophically in relation to the planet and humanity? Um, I did want to ask you a little bit more about this idea that the planet would be nicer if it weren't for human beings, which you've just talked about there, which has always struck me as one of the oddest ideas one could imagine. I mean, and even a basic knowledge of how people fare if they get lost in the rainforest, for example, or in a jungle or in the outback, they don't fare very well unless they are people who, who live there normally. But, you know, nature will kill you in pretty short order, or at least make life incredibly difficult for you. And I was thinking about all of this in relation to the recent heat wave. We have another heat wave in the UK this week, and, and the scaremongering has come back into play. This is all the fault of human impact on the planet. It's all down to our use of fossil fuels. We're heating the planet. We're all going to die in heat waves and so on. But isn't it the fact that deaths from those kinds of natural phenomena have actually been declining in tandem with the growth of modernity. And also, isn't it really an argument for ensuring that we have better developed, better uh, modern industrialized societies so that we can protect ourselves from nature's whims and recognize that nature is not always the friendly force that we think it is? Definitely. I think it all depends on the, this issue of what's your goal. So you said it, it's it's peculiar to you that people think of the planet as nicer without human impact. But really, the, the green view defines niceness by scarcity of human impact. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the idea is the ideal planet is the one that would exist had human beings never mm -hmm. existed. So you just think of an area of land that has some groundwater and you think like, is it nicer if we build a water well? Well, from the green perspective, no. Mm -hmm. It's less nice because we, we intruded on non-human nature. And the goal is for non-human nature to be unimpacted by us. It's interestingly, it's not even that the goal is to benefit. So it's definitely not to benefit humans, but it's not even to benefit non-human nature in some collective way, because many elements of non-human nature benefit from humans. Mm. Many species, particularly the ones that are cute, right? Or that, that, <laughs> that benefit us. Like, I mean, my dog benefits hugely from human impact. He would definitely not be around and not have his lifestyle. So it's really, it's it's hard to get at, but really the essence, again, it's not about the goal of anything living. The goal is really a negative goal. It's really to eliminate what human life does, yeah. which is impact nature. So it's a deeply, it's anti-human, I call it human racism, I think kind of captures it, right? So it's the idea that everything the human race does is evil and our goal should be to get rid of it. Uh, and then everything the rest of nature does is great and we just shouldn't interfere with it. So it's it's like the more you get that this is, and I'm mostly speaking to your listeners, you're one of the most sophisticated people on this issue, but like the more you get that this idea of eliminating human impact is deeply just anti-human at its core yeah. and is not about, it's not some weird circular way of benefiting human life or even the life of any other particular species. It's just a hostility toward our lives and the belief that we're evil. Like then, then you sort of get, oh, all this other stuff makes sense. And then including... You have to ask always, what's the goal? So you think with heat waves, okay, the, is, is the goal there, we want to minimize the threat of climate danger? Like, okay, well, first of all, 
you can't have that goal in isolation because you would want to, that's part of maximizing human flourishing, right? It's not, you don't just say as an end in itself, I only want to minimize climate danger, even if I starve to death, mm-hmm. at least the storms won't be. So, right? you, it's, so it's bizarre you would think of that in isolation, but even if you want to minimize climate danger, what do you obviously need to do? You obviously need to amplify your capacity to master climate. And yeah. if you look at the data, which you impl- you referred to implicitly, we we can measure the climate danger, including the number of people who die from climate-related disasters, and that's way down. You can also, by the way, measure who dies from temperature, and far more people die of cold than of heat. Yeah. So if you have a movement that says, oh, I care so much about climate danger, it just, it just rings my heart to see people dying of heat, but I don't care about the more people dying of cold, mm. and I don't acknowledge the fact that people are safer from climate than ever, and I'm passing policies to prevent them from air conditioning themselves in the summer and heating themselves in the winter, which is actually even more important. That is a fake concern for human life. And so I think I think it's very clear that the concern of the leaders is to find a thing to implicate fossil fuels with, not to make us safer from climate danger, let alone make us better off overall, which is the goal that you're operating on. And that's why it seems so weird to you, but it's, it's ultimately they're just different goals operating. Speaking of the heat wave, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and you touch on this in, in Fossil Future, and you've, you've written about it before as well, which is about all the apocalypses that didn't actually happen. And I do think it's an easy point in some ways, but I still think it's an important one and you make it very well. So we were told previously about global cooling, the problem of global cooling. We heard a lot about peak oil a decade ago. Maybe it was longer than that and I can't remember now. Obviously there was the population fear-mongering in the 1970s and in other decades, none of which happened. And it brings to my mind always uh, Thomas Malthus, who was predicting in the late 1700s and the early 1800s that mankind would never be able to produce enough food to feed people and, and everyone would starve to death. And then we've got this new story at the moment about the Great Barrier Reef. And we were told in you know very clear terms that the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Queensland is dying. It's been decimated. And now we discover that there is actually greater amount of coverage there than there has been for the past three or four decades. And that the study that those claims were based on are a little bit questionable, to say the least. How is it possible that these panics and these stories of dread and these predictions of apocalypse can come and go so frequently without any form of self-reckoning or reflection about where people went wrong and what they got wrong? Is it just a search for the new apocalypse upon which we can pin our general anxieties as a society? It's a really good question, and it's really notable that it's not a question that the establishment asks. Mm. It, it, it reminds me of, um, I heard a story about like some fortune teller who went on the radio every year. And there's like this really popular feature, just every year the person told the fortune, you know, they, they made these predictions about the future and they got so much ratings and stuff. And somebody asked them like, oh, how often has the person been right? And they said, oh, they've never been right. But people just <laughs> like the predictions. Now, so that's funny if it's a fortune teller on the radio, maybe. Yeah. But this is what I call our knowledge system. So the the institutions and people that are supposed to be giving us expert knowledge, including expert predictions of the future and so far as is possible. And when the mainstream knowledge system is so wrong, it's there would be such it's such a kind of obvious necessity for reflection. And you don't see it. You in fact see attempts to say, oh no, we were right. Like we, you know, we were just totally right. I got this. Um, there's some person I think is working on a hit piece on me who was emailing me some intelligent questions, but he said something like, you know, we can debate about how many of these predictions have been right and how many have been under predictions. Like, really? If you look at the last 50 years, you and based on what I show in chapter two of Fossil Future, you don't think that there's been a consistent catastrophizing Mm -hmm. telling us the world is going to get worse and then it's gotten better at an unprecedented rate. It's just, it's so clear, (laughs) but it's like the energy crisis. The people who are so wrong do not want to admit it. And that, that they need to be, it's the same thing. They need to be implicated. This needs to be pointed out. It can't just be, you can't just expect them to have the good, you know, the goodness to, to admit it. And, and I think I talk about in chapter three of Fossil Future, kind of what's going on here. I think there is an element of dishonesty. The root thing, and this relates to this, this anxiety you mentioned, is what I call a delicate nurture assumption. So the idea that the planet exists in a delicate nurturing balance that's stable, sufficient, and safe, but that human impact ruins 
That's a totally false view of Earth. The, the true view is what I call wild potential. So Earth is dynamic, deficient, and dangerous, and human impact uh, generally makes it much better. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely needed to make it much better. The more that you have delicate nurture, you just you just assume two things. You assume that the next impact is going to be the apocalypse and that reducing impact is going to be good for you. But the, and, and so that's when people have this view, they, they are looking for the apocalypse. But I, I just don't buy that it's inherent in human nature because I don't, I don't feel this way myself. Yeah. And I think it's because I have a certain philosophy. Like I don't think... I don't expect the apocalypse. I don't need the apocalypse. I don't want I don't want the <laughs> apocalypse. I want to live a good whatever 40, 50, 60 more years on earth and and I know that there's all the raw material and potential to do that. It's just a matter of the thing all the things I'm afraid of in terms of lack of resources and the increase of threats all relate to government and what they can do to restrict the freedom to make the earth an even more abundant and safe place. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. On the issue of the apocalypse, I agree very strongly that I, I really dislike the idea that it is just a central, I don't know, evolutionarily hardwired part of being a human being that you think the end of the world is around the corner. I've never felt that. I, I know lots of people who don't feel like that. I think that's a complete myth. But on the apocalypse, I wanted to ask you, I heard you say recently that if someone in the West, uh, you know, one of the upper middle class green activists who is determined to keep fossil fuels in the ground, for example, if someone like that was suddenly exported to one of the poorest parts of the world, uh, where people, as you say, use hardly any energy at all, may have to heat their homes by burning wood or animal dung and may have to walk for miles and miles to get water and, and don't have roads, don't have hospitals and so on. And you made the point that that would, to that person transported there, that would feel like the apocalypse in terms of the extraordinary horror that that would uh, feel like. Do you think part of the problem is just a misunderstanding of, and I, I suppose this goes in tandem with a misunderstanding of the benefits of modern industrialized society, also a misunderstanding of what you don't have if you don't have those benefits and, and just how incredibly grueling life can be for those billions of human beings who have been left out of this project of modernity and still don't have the things that people like us have. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if I have anything to add to that, but it's 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 totally true. Maybe one thing is just the educational system, so much of the job of an educational system is to teach people like crucial, non-obvious knowledge. And when you're in a world that's as unnaturally abundant and safe as ours is, one of the non-obvious things is how unnatural that is. You just grow up. I mean, even you see kids now, they grow up and just the iPhone is not a miracle. And even, <laughs> even if you grow up without it, it's like it, you get, it becomes normalized. That, oh yeah, well, this is just a normal kind of thing to happen. But what you really want is an awe of what human beings have achieved and are achieving at this moment. You know, another example is just supply chains, just people just thinking that, oh yeah, it's totally easy for me to have my monitor on time and my computer on time. This just like, no, wait, this free people were, were doing all these incredibly sophisticated things and people would devote their lives to very, very small portions of these supply chains to make them all work. And then these government people thought, no, I, I have a different idea. I think everything should run differently. What free people are deciding to produce and consume, that doesn't, that doesn't meet with my sensibility. So I'm just going to move some stuff. And then you just see none of it works. It's like if you've read Atlas Shrugged, one of my favorite books, it's like this, we're experiencing 
part two of Atlas Shrugged, where just the whole economy is, is degenerating because these idiots and looters think that they can just override the decisions of free people. They, mm. But the, the point is, it needs to be viewed as an achievement. And so part of it is what I think every, every kid needs to be taught is how bad the earth was before fossil fuel industrialization. Like that is yeah. the number one thing to learn in this domain. And if you learn that, then you will be afraid of losing it and you will be a lot less afraid of things like climate because you'll realize, oh, no, wait, climate used to be a catastrophe. Yeah. Like that's not what it is now. Yeah. It used to be a catastrophe. And then if you have any awareness of the history of the earth, it'll just be like, okay, yes, we if we make it warmer, it'll be greener, it'll be more tropical place, it'll happen slowly. That'll be good in some places, not as good in other places, bad in some places, but like the world will be so much better, just like it's so much better now than it was one degree ago, a hundred you know, we we had one degree cooler 150 years ago. Who wants to go back then? <laughs> why do why do people think another degree or two up? If we continue being prosperous, is going to be bad. It just makes no sense. If your goal is advancing human flourishing, and that's the standard by which you're measuring things. If your goal is, if you believe human impact is evil, and our goal should be to eliminate it, and you're measuring things that way, yeah, then then today's Earth is terrible. And then there's nothing to educate people about. Why educate them about the benefits of today's world? That's just going to make them more attached to it and more reticent to my green policies. So let's talk about human flourishing and we we talked about this last time you were on the podcast i think if anything it's even more important now given all the problems that we face and you write in your new book and you've written about this before as well that the primary moral goal our primary moral goal should be to advance human flourishing and what that really represents is a complete philosophical overhaul of how society currently thinks and how society is currently organized, which tends to be towards limiting the human impact, or at least certainly problematizing the human impact. Um, so just talk a little bit about how you understand human flourishing and why you think that should be the guiding principle of what of the decisions that society makes, rather than uh, limiting the impact and the problems that we've talked about. I think it's it's mostly a matter of just clarifying what human flourishing is mm. and, and making clear that this is a goal that's long-term and that includes what people value. They think they value about the green movement and, and limiting human impact. So when you're thinking of advancing human flourishing, one fallacy people will think about is, oh, you just care about today's survival and you don't care about the future. But that, that doesn't make any sense. That's not a pro-human thing to do, to be unconcerned about the future. And then the other thing is, oh, it's just all going to be a parking lot and or it's just all going to be like the worst Chinese city all over. But wait a second, is that human flourishing? So part of what flourishing captures is flourishing for an organism is live to its highest potential. So you can kind of simplify it as you know, long life, healthy life, opportunity-filled life, you know, with the opportunity for fulfillment, like that includes really enjoying non-human nature. Like that's a big part of, of human flourishing. And that's why wealthy people, why do they buy beachfront property, right? Why do they, they like, they go to Fiji, right? It's because it's non-human nature properly humanized and dealt with in a, in a pro-human yeah. way is very, very valuable. So, I think when people have a, any any even question about should we be thinking about the world and, and the effects of different technologies on the world in terms of advancing human flourishing or not, I think it's usually the only thing is they haven't been given that concept and or the concept has been distorted. Because if you really think of it as, yeah, we want to make a world that's better for human beings, including really having an amazing relationship with non-human nature, then the idea of eliminating our all of our impact as an end in itself is just revealed as deeply anti-human. But as I talk about, I keep referencing chapter three. There are other chapters in the book, but <laughs> you ask the philosophical question. So <laughs> chapter three is the most like philosophical chapter in the book. The the way this is screwed up is people think of eliminating impact. It's it's misrepresented as you know saving the planet or protecting the environment. It's just very vague. And what it, it blends together is like protecting the human environment from pollution versus protecting non-human nature from humans. And those are blended yeah. together under protect the environment. So as, again, is it protecting the environment to prevent a water well? Well, yes, if, if you think of yeah. you know, it's protecting non-human nature, but is it protecting the human environment to prevent a water well? Obviously not. It's improving the human environment. So I talk in chapter three about better terminology here, uh, but 
I'm really in favor, like I talk about our environment, our world, not the environment, the planet. So I think, I think once you clarify this issue, it's kind of like asking, hey, is it, is it better for human beings to live and flourish and have an amazing world or for life to be terrible? And most people will say it's better for them life to be amazing. And then the certain percentage of people think, no, I just hate humans. Yeah. I think there's something about us that's bad. And it's a real view though. It's like, yeah. we're this species that's much more powerful because we have these minds and what our minds can, the way our minds can impact nature is on a greater scale. And we just think that's wrong and we shouldn't do it. Yeah. And, and there's a question of where that comes from, but that, that is a view, but it's not a view that most people will will subscribe to. Yeah. And you no, know, you're absolutely right. That view exists. There is a view held by some influential people uh, that humanity is a plague on the planet. We're like a disease. We're like a pox. I've heard that said in, you know, quite rarefied circles in, in serious publications. So, so that view is out there. And, and it, it, over the past few years, at least, whether it changes or not, we'll have to see. But over the past few years, it did become a bit more common and terrifying to hear. A quick question I wanted to ask you before I move on to my final questions is, um, I wanted to ask you what you think about eco-modernists or green skeptics. Now, there are some excellent environmental skeptics. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg, you mentioned earlier, is one of them, the original skeptical environmentalist who's written some brilliant stuff. But what I find with some eco-modernists in Europe and some former members of Extinction Rebellion here in the UK who've now seen the light on things like nuclear power what I find interesting about those people, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is that they remain very antagonistic towards fossil fuels, the dirty fossil fuels, oil and, and coal and so on. Uh, and they often will say that we need to develop nuclear in order to stop using fossil fuels. I wanted to know what you think about that. I, I am pro-nuclear and I'm also pro using fossil fuels. Do you think those people are part of the problem in terms of the discussion we need to be having, even though they've seen the light in terms of climate change hysteria and they've seen the benefits that nuclear power could bring? I think of those people, and there is definitely a continuum as kind of on, hopefully on a journey to yeah. thinking about energy in a more humanistic way. And I know I'm not attributing certain, you've mentioned a lot of names, so I'm not attributing certain people to different points in the continuum. Yeah. But I do think that there's the issue of to be truly humanistic, you do need to embrace fossil fuels. So nuclear is amazing. It's in fundamentals, my favorite energy technology, but it is nowhere near able to power the world, let alone the poor world in the next 20 or 30 years. There's just no trajectory under which that's remotely plausible, even with much better policies, which I am pretty much the world's biggest advocate of what I call decriminalizing nuclear. So I'm actively working on this as hard as almost anyone to improve nuclear policy, to have more nuclear. But just the, the basic raw facts is nuclear is about 5% of the world's energy, almost exclusively producing electricity. It's just, you cannot be getting rid of fossil fuels and be hostile to them you know, because of nuclear. It just makes no sense. So the position of being hostile to fossil fuels makes no sense. But then I think the root of it is, it's interesting when it's put as eco-modernism mm. you know, and that, that kind of thing, because I think of it as, it's really like Michael Schellenberger, who's kind of moved on this in, in very mm. positive ways, I think. It's like now we'll describe it more as environmental humanism than eco-modernism. I think it's a much better term because the idea of eco-modernism and a lot of the focus here is kind of, hey, we are overestimating the extent to which we're destroying the planet. So let's kind of Let's kind of cool it down. Let's 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 be a little bit more moderate. Let's not do extreme. And by the way, there's some damage of doing this to human beings. But mm. the focus is on still, it's exaggerated how much we're impacting the planet adversely. And then like there are some harmful consequences, but it's still like focused on how much are we impacting the planet, yeah. and that's the primary thing, versus how much are we advancing human flourishing. And one physics PhD who I used to work with at the Ayn Rand Institute, Keith Lockage, he had a review of my book, which I really appreciated and had talked about it. He, he pointed out that if you look at the titles of the other bestsellers that I would consider as broadly energy humanist besides mine, they're all focused on the, the falseness of the exaggerated impact. So it's, it's false alarm, mm. unsettled, and uh, apocalypse never. I like all these books a lot, but I like all the people a lot, but it is notable, like, whereas it's, mine is fossil future why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal, and natural gas. Now, this is not even the word about apocalypse, 
right? And the idea is that, or impact, it's an idea that fossil fuels are a huge benefit, that we should be pursuing human life and that this is a huge positive and we should not allow this bad thinking, including this wild catastrophizing about the negative side effects to get in the way. So I, I do think that the, the ultimate thing is to get everyone to think about this in a humanistic way and to treat side effects as one aspect of pursuing human flourishing versus making that the primary uh, thing. So that, that's where I think, and I think Spiked is also, has long been in this camp too, of it's very much come at this from, okay, we're interested in human life and this is harmful to human life. And that's why I think you've been, you are already had this view, but you were sort of very extravagantly nice to the moral case for fossil fuels in my work. And Spiked is consistently good about this kind of thing over the years. And I think it's because it's, its starting point is humanism and it looks at environmental issues in that context versus the starting point as obsessive concern about impact as such. And then, oh, let's walk that back a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Spiked has always considered itself a, a radical humanist publication. So the question we always ask ourselves on all issues is, will this be of benefit to humankind? And that ought to be, I think, the the guiding principle of social life and, and public life. It's so important. Uh, like you, I, I, I like those three books that you mentioned there very much. And I've had all three of the, their authors, Bjorn Lomborg, Michael Schellenberger, and Stephen Koonin, on this podcast. And all three of them have made an excellent contribution to calling into question some of the uh, public misunderstanding of issues around climate change and issues around uh, human impact. And they've made great contributions to the debate. And so that brings me on to my final question for you, which is really about, and I think we touched on this before as well, but I'm interested to see if things have changed, really about your levels of optimism. You've always struck me as an optimistic guy particularly about humanity in the broadest sense and our capacity to improve life in ingenious ways. And you talked during this discussion about the fact that there could be new spaces opening up for a rethinking of the scaremongering and the myths that have been spread over the past few decades. And you mentioned, of course, those interesting critical voices that are shaking the discussion up, which of course prominently includes yours. Uh, so do you feel optimistic that the discussion, the climate discussion, the fossil fuel discussion, the, the human impact discussion will become firstly more free, you know, get rid of some of the censure and censorship that has attended it over the past few years, but also may, may be more fruitful for understanding what humanity needs to do next. I would say, I think it, it definitely could be. <laughs> and maybe everyone has this attitude, but I kind of really I, I think a lot about like what can I do individually that will actually work. In, in part, I have kind of a business engineering background and still do some of that stuff in other capacities. And just I'm very focused on kind of because I, I just think it's not inevitable one way or the other. Is yeah. basically yeah. the thing I think. And and so I've thought a lot. Even writing fossil future is a weird thing to do because I already had a best selling book on on fossil fuels and. My view is that nobody even has to read Moral Case for Fossil Fuels anymore because Fossil Future replaces it. People don't usually write a replacement for a book, right? They just pick a new topic or a new aspect. And, but I just, that book, which I wrote in six months, the first one was so effective. And I thought it was so, there was so much better that was possible in terms of both persuading a, a general skeptical audience, skeptical of my views, and then also empowering people who are champions. So I spent a lot of time three plus years creating this new thing that was designed to be, this is the best thing I can think of. And part of that is I'm really thinking about what would make a difference. And part of what makes a difference is I thought there needed to be a totally comprehensive case from beginning to end where the thing was framed perfectly. You know, hundreds of myths are refuted. Everything is explained very, very precisely. Like that's the, I mean, people can judge for themselves whether I achieved it, but that was the goal of thinking about, I really need to create the best possible case because then that'll maximize the number of, of intelligent converts that, so to speak, that I can get. But also it'll empower allies because they'll have all of these arguments on the specific issues. Another project I have, energytalkingpoints.com, is very similar, different strategy, but it's creating talking points on every issue that fit in length of a tweet. So if you look at my Twitter at Alex Epstein, but if you just look at that site, I've got hundreds, probably thousands at this point of points, and we have them all referenced and we're creating an energy freedom policy. But like, I really think about what resources can I create that can win. And even if in my behavior, I think about 
Like, why do I challenge people to debates? Because I think that's a really powerful way of showing people mm-hmm. which position is right and which position is wrong. And the fact the other side, prominent people are increasingly afraid to debate me itself shows things. Um, I come from partially martial arts background and like jujitsu and jujitsu became prominent by publicly challenging all the other martial arts mm-hmm. and they just folded. I mean, they, they avoided it, but then they folded. And I think of the same thing with, you know, the human flourishing perspective versus the anti-impact perspective. So like I myself am very strategically trying to do this. And a lot of this is, so one implication of that is you listening to this, if use those resources a lot, like use fossil future, certainly use energytalkingpoints.com, which is free. And if you like my approach, definitely promote me to other shows and hosts and stuff, because now, I want to be on the level of Al Gore, where when people think on the opposite side, where when people think of this issue, they know that there's somebody who's really clear on it that the other side really has no answer to. So I, I think, and I do believe in the power of individuals. And I do think that all things considered, I'm probably the person, individual right now, most capable of like single-handedly doing things. And so I would rather that not be the case, incidentally. But since it is, to my knowledge, like I'm really trying to go out there and just take everyone on. Alex, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.